want to remind you of a couple of different things. First of all, on February 3rd, we have a lot going on. We have a baptism coming up. So if you have not been baptized and you'd like to be baptized, we would certainly encourage you to consider that. You can contact me um, in the church office or contact Megan in the church office and let us know. We'll have a little baptism instruction. That same day, the Haiti team is going to be making a presentation for those who might be interested in what's going on in Haiti. They're already making plans and getting ready to go this, uh, this next year, this year. So we'd encourage you to come out. That's a lunch thing. We'll be having a lunch together. And then the last thing I want to call to your attention, there are a lot of things in the bulletin. The last thing I want to call to your attention is that the uh, Iowa Bible Camp, there's a, a retreat coming up. So uh, you can make note of that in the bulletin. If you're interested in that, contact Tom Baird. He's the guy to contact. Okay, thanks. invite you to pray with me if you would. Father, what a Savior that you have provided for us. I pray now, Father, that your Spirit would work to show us things in your Word that for many of us are not new, but I pray that you would make them new and fresh to us. Teach us what you want us to hear and to know and to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 9th, 1946, 11-year-old Keen Freeman was trying to retrieve his canteen that had fallen into the Merced River, and he slipped, and he fell into the swollen river just above Vernal Falls in Yosemite National Park. Orville Luce was there. He's a 21-year-old uh, ex-Navy guy. And so he jumped into the river, jumped the guardrail and went into the river and swam out and caught a hold of young Freeman, little Keen, and started frantically trying to swim to bring him to the shore. But the current was too strong. And both of them cascaded over the rapids Vernal Falls and fell to their death on the rocks 325 feet below. Orville's efforts, strenuous efforts to save this young boy caught in the current are a parallel to the old covenant sacrificial system which is unable to deliver those caught in its current from the power and the penalty of death. Here it is. The force, Orville's inability parallels that as we look at it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28, the text we're going to look at today, we see that uh, the, the author of Hebrews writes to us and he tells us that in strong contrast to the old covenant's impotence, is the significance of the Savior's death, which is able to overcome the power of sin, the current in which we're caught, and to deliver all those who would put their trust or the faith in Christ from its power and its penalty. And so if you have your Bibles, I just invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read through verses 15 through 28. And there we're going to see two important accomplishments Two important accomplishments of Christ's death that challenge those who, who don't know Christ to say, hey, maybe I need to look at this and, and trust in Christ, and that provide real comfort for those of us who know the Lord. I'm in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 15. And for this reason, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, or if you're reading the ESV or the NIV, it says for where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated with blood, was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses and all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same, at the same way, he sprinkled, in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, we may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it he, that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as much as it is appointed to, for men to die once, and then comes the judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for the salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot of stuff in there. But we're looking at how it is that Christ's sacrifice was able to do what all the blood of bulls and goats and calves for centuries was unable to do. The significance of it. And these two accomplishments are laid out for us in the text. In verses 15 through 22, first of all, we see that Christ's death inaugurated the new covenant. It brought it into being. And there are three facts that support this. If you'll look with me, first of all, at, at verse 15, he says, And for this reason, or if you want, the first one is the reason. The first way that he shows us, the first fact to support it is the reason for Christ's blood. And if you're reading the ESV, it says, therefore, if you're reading the New American Standard or the translation I have, it says, for this reason. Well, what reason? What reason is he a mediator? What is the reason he's a mediator? It points us back, therefore, points us back to verses 12 through 14. For sure, probably going clear back into chapter 8, but it is the blood of Christ that makes him this mediator for us. It's Christ's blood shed for us, whereby we obtain, verse 14, eternal redemption, and whereby Christ gains access into the presence of God as a mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a stand-between. 
brings two parties that are disagreement together and settles the disagreement. Our, our son is a lawyer and there are oftentimes the, the cases are brought to mediation, which means that there's a supposedly impartial third party that actually decides what's actually going to be settled in the dispute. That's what a mediator does. Those who sin must die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Those who sin must die. That's the punishment for sin. That's what happens to sin. Uh, the only way for someone not to be sentenced to death is for a sacrifice to be made that would be in their place. The only sufficient sacrifice for our sin so that we wouldn't have to bear the punishment of it is that Christ died in our place or died for us. He purchased our pardon so that we could be in God's presence, so that he could be in God's presence. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to show it later, but I'm just going to share it with you now. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ died for sin, sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why did he do that? That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The first covenant emphasized what? It emphasized our fallen condition. It emphasized our guilt. It emphasized the fact that no matter what we do, our self-reliance wasn't enough. It forced us to see that we needed the grace of God. It showed us our inability to get to God on our own. Galatians chapter 3, verses, verse 24, uh, tells us what the first covenant was supposed to do. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, says this. I do not have this memorized. So, Galatians 3, 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Christ's death is the grounds for mediation, to settle the dispute, because we have sinned, we deserve death, so how does it come about that we don't have to be, serve or be punished for this death? A covenant is inaugurated, settled by blood. All through the Old Testament, I'm not going to give you every example, but the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham settled that back in Genesis chapter 15, there was bloodshed. In Exodus chapter 24, when the Old Covenant, the First Covenant, there was blood that was shed. When we sign a contract, how do we sign it? Get a pen out, right? Sign a contract. In the Old Testament, what they did was they shed blood, and then oftentimes they had animals, and like in Genesis 15, they shed the animals, and it's kind of weird to me, but then they put the animals one on each side, and then they walked through the, between the animals, and that was somehow to signify that both parties were bound to the covenant. It's kind of wild. So the result, the reason why Jesus is the inauguration of the new covenant is because he shed his blood. That's what the text says. Secondly, what's the result of Christ's blood being shed? Well, there's a twofold benefit to us. First of all, if you're looking in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says that death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Christ's death paid the price, the ransom, the price to deliver all violators of the first covenant so that they wouldn't suffer the penalty. 
He paid the price that was sufficient as his blood was shed, a sacrifice that paid the price that we deserve. Everybody who violated, not just us, but from the first covenant forward. He paid that price, even those who live in the Old Testament. It's kind of like a retroactive, somebody paying your back taxes. He paid it all the way back. It's all taken care of from the past into the present, into the future. People of every age are forgiven on the same basis, the blood of Christ. That's what the text says, that he paid, he redeemed it, paid the transgression, the redemption of the transgressions. Price paid, it's all paid. That's what he did. Secondly, it was a reception of a promised eternal inheritance. That's what it says in verse 15. He says, so that those sins that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been, so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now you go, okay, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Christ's perfect sacrifice ratified the new covenant, making it possible for all who have been called, those in whom God's Spirit worked, in whom God's Spirit opened their eyes so that they would see the truth and that they would respond in faith that God provided them the grace and the courage to do. Those are the called, okay? In the past and today. Old Testament, New Testament, those are called. The necessity of the Messiah's death was something that the Old Testament said had to happen. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the Messiah would suffer and die. Problem is, the, the, the people at the time the author of Hebrews is writing, they really didn't take too kindly of the fact that Jesus had died on a cross, like he was a common criminal. So they couldn't wrap their brain around the fact that he would be able to provide for them an eternal inheritance. How could the Son of God die that way? Well, they struggled with it. The author of Hebrews goes on to tell them why Christ's death had to happen. There's the reason he's the mediator, because he died. There is the result of his mediation, that is, an eternal inheritance and that is received and eternal redemption that's purchased. And then we see the requirement of Christ's blood. That's verses 16 through 22. And it's really laid out in two arguments. The covenants require death. If you're going to have a contract in the Old Testament, you have to have a death. And he points that out with three illustrations. Or examples. And the first is an illustration. If you look at verse 16, it says, For where a will is, or a covenant, it's a last will and testament. When does the last will and testament go into effect? When the person who wrote it dies. That's the point he's trying to make. A last will and testament goes into effect when the person who made it dies. That's the illustration. And elsewhere in Hebrews where you see this word, Will, it's translated as covenant, and it has the special meaning of God's gracious uh, work bestowed on behalf of his people. But there had to be a covenant for a will, for a will to go into place, somebody had to die. The second illustration he uses is the inauguration of the first covenant. So he's saying there a will to go into place, somebody has to die. For the first covenant to come into place, somebody had to die. If you look at verse 
18, therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated, not inaugurated without blood. So there had to be bloodshed for the first covenant. And then he goes and gives you the details about Moses and how he sprinkled the blood on, on the sacrifices, the blood on the book, which represented God, and on the people representing people, so that both were bound by the terms of the covenant. Okay, that makes sense. And then the third example he gives, so... For a last will and testament, must be a death. For the first covenant, there must be a death. Well, if the first covenant needed a death, so did the, the second covenant needed a death. It's, a, it's the same thing. But then we see finally in verse 21, that's the perpetuation of the purification and the life that the first covenant brought about had to have death. You see in verse 21, he says, And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And not only him, but every priest after him always sacrificed blood. Why? That's just the way it had to be happening for them to have a covenant. So, you say, oh, that's kind of, there's a lot of blood in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. There's a lot of blood there. But it had to be for the covenant to be ratified the same way the first covenant was ratified was the second covenant was ratified, but this was the blood of Christ. And not only that, not only does a covenant require death, but forgiveness requires death. Look at verse 22. He says, And according to the law, one may almost say, which is interesting, you read it, one may almost say, that forgiveness requires blood. That's my translation. He says, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Well, what does he mean that one may almost say? It means you can't always say, because you go back into Leviticus chapter 5, and you see that if you were the poorest of the poor, you didn't bring an animal to sacrifice for the atonement of your sins. You brought flower so that's the exception in every other case in the old testament blood had to be shed for there to be forgiveness of sin life is in the blood if i sin i deserve to die if i'm not going to die something else must die in my place thus the blood the life is symbolized in the blood, and the blood is shed so that the life for a life is kept. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, blood was necessary for the atonement of sins, for the punishment. MacArthur put it this way, Since the penalty for sin is death, nothing but death, symbolized by shedding of blood, can atone for sin. The animal blood shed under the Old Covenant wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough to accomplish atonement. That it had to be regularly offered up. Keep sacrificing day after, or day after day and then year after year. Only the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that of a lamb without spot or blemish. A human person sacrificed for human beings, perfect so that his precious blood was that of a lamb without spot, so that it would be a perfect human sacrifice in the place of human beings. I have sat on a number of occasions in a congregation 
at a funeral and heard the officiant, the person conducting the service, say of the deceased, we're so glad that so-and-so is now with the Lord because so-and-so was baptized, because so-and-so was catechized, because so-and-so served great and did great things in the church. And I look at what God's word says, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And that I say, while baptism and confirmation and catechism and membership and generosity and serving in the church are all good things, they are no better than the Old Testament sacrifices in accomplishing a person's redemption and accomplishing a person's salvation. The blood of animals in the Old Testament and and Christ in the new serve as reminders that the penalty for sin is death and the only death that's sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God and atone for all men is the blood of Christ. Forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is costly. It costs God his son. God's love and justice could not overlook our sin. But in love, he sent his son. There's a, a song that was written in the Welsh Revival that uh, helps me think about the price that Christ paid. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Christ's blood, his death, enabled him to enact a better covenant that would be a sacrifice that would be sufficient for your sin and my sin. I just want to stop and say, his blood paid the ransom. Have you accepted the payment personally? Are you trusting in what he did as the payment for your sin? The second accomplishment of Christ's death in the text. And that is his death ensures the new covenant benefits for those who believe. And that's verses 23 through 28. There we see again in the text that word therefore. Which links us back to the previous section. That blood is necessary for consecration. It's necessary for forgiveness. And then he says... For this is the way it was in the Old Covenant. He says, for, therefore it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens. That's the Old Testament sacrificial system. They had to be 
Blood had to be shed. What animal blood? Well, now there's a better sacrifice. So he's saying, I think, that the new covenant, heavenly things, for them to be inaugurated, for the Christ to enter into the heavenly realm, for that to be uh, happened, to be consecrated, and for sin to be provided for, for that sin to be provided for, there needed to be a better sacrifice. I mean, obviously, the things that were happening in the Old Testament didn't do it, didn't cut it, had to be. Um, how many of you have a dishwasher? Other than yourself, most of you have a dishwasher, right? Some of you are the dishwasher, okay? You know, I would love to have a dishwasher that cleaned my dishes so clean that I never have to run them through the dishwasher again. Wouldn't that be a good thing? I mean, I, the last week I've picked up the same eating utensil that has gone through the dishwasher three times and it still had dried egg on it. I found this out after I had it in my mouth. (laughs) Perpetual, perpetual cleansing. What Christ is saying is that these Old Testament copies, they are the shadow of which the heavenly tabernacle is the substance of which Jesus is the answer. These Old Testament, they had to be, there was blood animals but now there has to be a better sacrifice well what is that better sacrifice the author gives us three reasons why Jesus death is a better sacrifice and the reasons are also benefits to those who believe and as uh, Dr. McLeod from uh, Emmaus has, has pointed out they all relate to the appearing of Jesus to his presence present appearing in heaven, to his past and his future appearings. So we're going to walk through them. First of all, we see he appears in heaven to represent us. That's verses 23 and 24. Verse 24, for, this is the reason, for is a reason, because gives us the the reason that Jesus' sacrifice is better, because he is there for us, he gave himself, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, uh, which parallels verse 11 in chapter 9, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear, there's the word, in the presence of God for us. He went there as the atoning sacrifice to pay the, had paid the price, accomplished our redemption by paying the ransom price that needed to be paid for our sins because sin must be paid for. And there he is in heaven. He's in the presence of God. His death made it possible for him to go there. His death made it possible for us to go there, to be in the presence of God. And we get there the same way, through the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. You see, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're like taking Advil for arthritis. They treat the symptoms, but they don't do anything for the disease or the problem. They treat the symptoms. So they treated the symptoms temporarily, but they didn't cure the thing. What Christ did was he cured. He didn't just cover up sin. And he was ushered into the presence of God. Christ's presence with the Father for us also gives us confidence because he's there 
as Mark and Kyle pointed out in Hebrews chapter 7, he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he made it possible for us to go there, and until we get there, he's praying for us. Second reason that Christ's death is superior is that he appeared on earth to permanently pardon us, verse 25. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin. See, that is, once he was manifested. When was he once manifested to put away sins? At his first advent, when he came to this earth and suffered and died on a cross to put away sins. Christ's sacrifice does not involve perpetually offering himself year by year by year by year. Ah, there's that dishwasher. Cleaned it all once. It doesn't have to be cleaned again. That's the, di- that's the clothes washer. Don't have to wash your clothes anymore because they're clean forever. Christ cleaned us forever at the first coming. Christ does not eternally offer himself continually, continually. Now look folks, in a little bit we're going to take the the Lord's uh, bread and cup. Some places they teach that Christ is in heaven continually offering himself up as a sacrifice that we're reminded of when we take the bread and the cup. That's not true. He is not continually offering himself up. The text says he doesn't keep offering himself up in distinction. But once at the consummation of the age, he put away. He eliminated sin. He eliminated the penalty and the power of sin for all who believe. I want to be careful there. He eliminated the penalty and the power of sin for all who believe. It's not universalism. It's not like, well, Jesus died once for all, so now everybody's saved. No. He died once for all so that you and I could be saved. But we must put our trust or our faith in what Christ did in order for that to happen. And it is the historic expression of God's mercy for all. Those in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and those after the time of Christ in the New Covenant. You say, well, how can that be? Well, they look, they in the Old Covenant looked forward to what we look back to in faith. Christ's blood was sufficient for all. In his death, he provided the pardon that removes the penalty and the power of sin permanently for all who accept it. Finally, He will appear to deliver us from judgment. Verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed to man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time. See, appear a second time. There it is. Show up, appear. This certainty, which is mentioned in verse 27, is Compared to Christ's work. The certainty of death. Well, all men die, right? Why do men die? It's punishment for sin. Christ, as a man, died, right? But, as a perfect human being, he didn't die for his sin. He died for our sin. That's the distinction. That's the difference. He didn't die for his sin, but for our sin. And why did he die? He died, as it says, to bear, in in verse 28, he says, 
shall appear a second time for the... No, verse 27, I'm sorry. So Christ, having offered himself to bear the sins of many, he died to pay our sin. And he's going to come again and appear, but not with regard to salvation. Not to deal with sin. It is regarding salvation, not to deal with sin. Uh, When our kids were younger... When I was coming home, that was either a pleasant experience or a not-so-pleasant experience. If they'd had a good day, Dad came home, it was fine. There was no reference to sin in my appearing, and so we could have fun and enjoy each other. Well, that is the picture of what Christ's second coming is for those who believe. It's not with reference to sin. He dealt with that once. It's with reference to delivering us from the judgment that that if we had sinned would bring and bring us into the presence of God so that we will spend eternity with him. We're delivered from judgment and we come into, as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9, into rest. Hebrews 11, 9, into the land of promise, into his presence. That's what we come into. He died once for all, once for all. You see, we should be viewing the second coming. We should be viewing the blood of Christ a lot like the little boy who went with his daddy to pick out a puppy. And they sat there and they stood there and they looked at the little litter of puppies. And they were all sitting there very quiet, but there was one little puppy who was wagging his tail. And the dad said to the son, son, which puppy would you like? And he says, I want the puppy with the happy ending. Yeah, and if we're here this morning, and if you're here this morning, and you're trusting in Christ, it's a happy ending, not just someday, but now, because right now you have permanent pardon from your sin. You have an eternal inheritance that is coming to you. You and I have the blessed hope that Christ, when he appears, we will be with him in glory. It doesn't wait until then. It happens now. We have pardon. We are in his presence, and eventually we will experience what we just taste now. That's the picture that Christ provides for us. And this is a message, I think, that must be responded to. What is the significance of Christ's death? The significance of Christ's death is that it enables you and I to be delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death, separation from God for eternity, from the power of sin now so that you and I can live victoriously and not live always sinning slaves to sin and then ultimately from the presence of sin. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you could trust in your baptism. You could trust in your confirmation or your church membership or that you go to church all the time or that you maybe uh, give money, maybe even more than a lot of people or that you're serving really actively in a local church. And those are all good things. But they aren't good enough. They're like the Old Testament sacrifices. How much, how do you know you've done enough? You don't have to live on that treadmill. 
We don't have to live with the constant nagging that there's some sin in my past that I could never get past. I can never do enough penance to earn God's favor because I, I, I have this thought life that is off the charts, that I have this compulsive behavior that is too decadent for God to ever forgive because I have these attitudes, these outbursts of anger or whatever it is that's in my life. I can't deal with it. You don't have to. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's the joy. And all I say to you is, this is the pardon that has been purchased. Will you just accept the ransom that's been paid? Admit that you are messed up. And that you deserve death. Believe that Christ's death was a sufficient sacrifice. Yeah, even for you. And then confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. That's what Paul says. And for those of us who believe, do we appreciate the mercy of God? You know, for some of us, it's like, man, I hear this all the time. And I struggled with this when I'm preparing this message because I'm thinking, how do we say something old, new? It's not my job. My job is to say something old and to say it and to say it and to say it. That we would receive turn from our sin and trust Christ and that we have been redeemed gloriously that we don't deserve. A few weeks ago, Marla and I were asked if we would like to go to the Iowa State-Kansas basketball game. Somebody that we know had tickets that they were willing to give us for free. Now, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Okay? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So it's the flip side of, of mercy. That's why I look at it. Do you and I really understand the mercy, the grace of God, if we're a child of God? How often do you sit and think about what God has done for you? And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. We appreciate God's love for us and his mercy. We articulate his love and mercy. Do we anticipate that day when we will know peace beyond this earth? We will know prosperity that we never could ever have dreamt of. And we will know no judgment. As we uh, think about that, we come to the table. Not to remember a sacrifice that's ongoing, but to remember a once-for-all sacrifice. 
that purchased our pardon. That provided us access to the presence of God. And that promises us that we will be with him one day in glory. And if you're here this morning, I just invite you to meditate on those truths. And then come and take this bread, which is a symbol of his body, and this cup, which is a symbol of his blood, body broken, blood shed, so that we could be forgiven. And if you don't know Christ, I say, no better day than today. To wave that white flag of surrender and say, okay, Lord, I'm, star, I'm star, tired of start trying to do this on my own. I'm going to surrender to you. Let's pray. Father, give us a greater and a fresher understanding of the mercy that you have extended to us through the sending of your Son to die a death that each of us deserved to die. But now by your grace and mercy and love, we don't have to. Help us to let the love of Christ control us. Having considered this, that one died for all, therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Father, as we take this bread and drink this cup, help us to appreciate your mercy us to resolve, just to say thanks, help us to, in our prayers, ponder what you've done, help us, in our praise and song, rejoice in what you've done, help us, in our proclamation, give witness to what you've done, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. the